0: at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started.
1: Hey, it's good to be with you today, friends. Welcome here. I thought today we'd enjoy a coffee together. I hope you have a hot beverage in your hand like I have in mind. One of the things that has been odd for all of us is being able to sit down like this and share together, talk about how things are going, is something that, well... It's been rarer and rarer, and uh, so today I thought to take this opportunity, yes, I know we can't quite dialogue the way that we normally would, but to be able to sit and to talk and to enjoy a beverage together. We're continuing on with our series, What Matters Most, and I'm excited today to go to the next passage in 1 John. Listen, so much of what matters in life is about what we love in life, right? We know this. I mean, think about how we get to know one another. So much of our conversations will be around, what do we love? You know, what do you love? What do you love to do on the weekend? What books do you love? Uh, what artists or concerts do you love to go to? What movies do you love? What hobbies do you love? What are the, what are the things that you just love to see, love to experience? Or maybe the classic Question coming out of 2020 might be Which places would you love to see? I know that a lot of our conversations as we get to know one another can be around that question. Many times, our friendships, in fact, are formed around shared loves shared love of hiking, shared love of birds, shared love of knitting, shared love of hockey or motors, or well, you name it. And a lot of people have actually found. Wonderful friendships together around shared loves. Other times, of course, we may not share the same loves, but we can deepen our appreciation for each other when we share our love for something with someone else. I really enjoy hearing about your loves or your passions. As you share them with me, it may not be the same as mine, but it's always so, isn't it so interesting to hear someone share about something they love? They're passionate about it. That's something to me about their subject, but also about them. I appreciate them more. Our loves matter. They really do. And that's where John the Elder, who's writing this letter to these Christians in his day, but now to us many years later, this is where he takes us today. It's about what matters most when it comes to our love. You know, so much of John's little letter is about love, Many of our classic statements about love, about how God is love, about how we should love one another, not in not in just what we say, but how we live, but how love is central to all of life actually comes out of this little letter. Because love, you could say, ultimately matters most. But to really experience love, to know God's love, to have that living in us and bubbling in us and shaping us, John also gives what is very clearly a negative command in the passage today. In order to fully love, there's something we can't love. And he gives us a command to do not love something. And And it can seem a little startling, but as we dig into it, we're able to understand why he would say such a thing. Today we're continuing in our series, What Matters Most, as we explore this little letter of 1 John, which is, toward the very end of the New Testament. And John directs us, invites us, in fact, to examine our love, our primary love. And to see that while there's many things that we can love in life, that's really true, the kind of love he's going to be challenging us on, there's an incompatibility with the love of God. And so I just, let's walk through that together today. How I wish we could, maybe dialogue a little more about this. I'd like to hear from you some of your ideas. But my hope is very practical today. I'd like to not get bogged down in a bunch of the details. I'd like us to come out of the woods today with a real clear line of sight for where we can go next, where you can go next, where we as the Erickson Covenant Church or perhaps you as a seeker exploring faith, where you could go next when it comes to what matters most. Well, this is how John moves on. Verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, he says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father or, it can be translated, God's love, is not in them. Now I know this can sound kind of harsh and kind of shocking kind of weird especially in light of we would say the things the good things that we love and so we need to explore this a little further. What John is pointing out here is that our most basic love in other words the thing which orients our lives uh, shapes our direction and our purpose calls for our total allegiance what he's saying here is critical for us to understand as Jesus followers, but also as people who are exploring faith, and is this. There really can only be one primary allegiance, one true love. And so he puts it right out there in really stark terms. He says it's, it's one or the other. These can't be shared. He's not talking here about hobbies or interests. He's not talking about that kind of love. He's talking about that basic obedience. He's actually talking about covenant, exclusivity. Who are we really following? What he's contrasting here is a heart that is bowed in allegiance, uh, worship, you could say, to ways of the world that stand in total contrast to who God is as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, these two allegiances, these two ways of being, these two loves, well, it is one or it is the other. And actually, when we step back and think about the life of Jesus and what he talked about and how he spoke about his Father and the kingdom of God that had come through him, this is kind of Jesus 101. But as we come to see Jesus and begin to hear what he's talking about and see what he's doing and 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 begin to take in this kingdom of god message that he was declaring what we hear really clearly is that the first sort of response is that we have to repent which can sound like really religious language now but in Jesus day it wasn't religious language it it meant change allegiance it meant turn around it meant realize i'm going the wrong direction and face the other Way It's equivalent to someone who's way off on the wrong road, driving, 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 and realizes they've missed the turn from way back there, and having to face that moment when they realize the only way to get where I need to go is I have to turn around and go the other way. And the call to repent from Jesus, John the Baptist, all through, is this call to recognize that I no longer am going to follow the path I've been following because now I've seen what God has done in Jesus. I'm going to turn around and go the other way. But you can't go both ways at once. That's the point here. And so when people, when we realize this is who God is, revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and we confess him as the Lord, the master, the one through whom God has come, we're now confessing a new master. And by definition, that's rejecting the old one. And the Holy Spirit then takes up residence in us And our loves begin to change. Our way of thinking begins to shift. The old begins to ebb away because new creation has come to us. We're living now under new leadership, and that's a process for sure. And yet it also represents a real moment in time when a change has occurred and our love allegiance has shifted from the way of the world to the way of the Creator. And so what John is saying is this, if someone's life is still under total allegiance to the ways of the world, which we'll explore in just a moment what that means, then that's a sign that, well, the creator himself, the, the, the lover who's been revealed in Jesus, hasn't yet come and taken up residence. It's, it's not nearly as judgy or condemnation as it might sound. It's actually just a statement of fact. It's one or the other. Jesus himself said when challenging people who were given over to the love of wealth, He said, look, these two things can't coexist. You can't serve two masters. Remember Jesus when he said that? He said either you're going to serve one and hate the other or love one and despise the other. And then he concludes by saying, you can't love both God and money. Well, there's a similar thing going on here. These two loves can't coexist. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) It's a negative command, do not love, in a, a letter that has been predominated by our need to love. So, how do we understand that? Well, first, I want to start with what it does not mean. I think this is really important because when we hear the words uh, just in English, you know, "do not love the world" or anything in the world, we can immediately begin to think of a whole bunch of things in the world that that doesn't make sense about. Like we think, "What? Aren't aren't I supposed to love my kids?" Huh. Well. One would hope uh, aren't I supposed to love the beauty of a sunset or the the, the 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 wonderful you know creation of God you know we begin to think what does this mean well first let 's start with what it does not mean when John says, "Do not love the world or anything in the world." this is not suggesting that we then should despise god's creation that we should sort of turn away in disgust to any sort of earthly or or uh, tangible material realities around us, that we should disregard the body, for example, and not not look at anything that's beautiful because it might detract us from God. I think you might know if you've read history or maybe you've even had some conversations with people um, that that is actually something that has held sway in history, in, in various religious groups, but certainly within Christianity. And, That is not what John's saying here. That's not consistent with the whole of Scripture. It's kind of a passion project of mine, but as Jesus followers, I believe that we actually need a more robust understanding of God's creation, of the human body, of our place as God's images in the world that he made. A more robust understanding of the planet, the environment. Um, In light of God's plan, to bring renewal and restoration through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so much of our confusion in life, our Christian lives, but also our broader societal lives, come when we have a false or faulty understanding of God's creation. This affects how we think about so many things, from, of course, our sexuality, to our money, um, to family life, to the planet, how we how we vote, how we eat, how we exercise—all these things are really affected by the intersection of the body and creation and what God is doing. So we need to grow in that. And uh, if you've been around the Erickson Covenant Church for a while, you know I, I I do talk about that periodically and maybe even even quite a bit. But I'm I'm shaped by the fact that Psalm 24, for example, says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and All through Scripture, we see the goodness of creation held up while at the same time acknowledging the brokenness that exists. Perhaps one of the most shocking things about um, this command of John to not love the world is that we can think of the most famous Scripture of all time. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, right? And it's the same word, uh, same writer, same word cosmos, the word for world is the same. And so we think, what? God passionately loves the world and we're told not to love the world. How do these things go together? Well, the truth is that word has some plasticity, has some openness, like all of our language does. So the word cosmos can refer to all of the created world. It can refer to all of the humans. It can refer to the the goodness of creation. For God so loved his world recognizing his brokenness, but he still sent his son to redeem it. But it also can represent, um, you could say, the fallen world, or a world that has set itself up in rejection of the creator. And it can represent society or culture or ways of thinking that are fundamentally opposed to God's best desires. A lot of words are like that. We know that the word flesh, for example, can mean positive or neutral things, and it can also mean negative things. That's in Scripture, that's in life. And so we look at this word and recognize that there's a need for some nuance. And one of the things that challenges us as Christians is that we need to have a a better understanding of God's creation so that we can engage his challenge to both love and not love. We struggle with that, quite honestly, historically and otherwise. I was just reading the other day about uh, poet Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, one of the greatest poets um, of the 19th century. And he struggled when he um, came to faith as a poet. He he felt like the, the work of the art that was you know, passionate in his life was somehow incompatible with following Christ. And so he set it aside. For seven years, he didn't write any poetry because he somehow had bought into this idea which has been prevalent in Christian circles at certain times in history that things of art or beauty or goodness, um, things of the world that were clearly creations of God, and yet somehow they thought they they couldn't participate in them. I've heard of people who've come to faith and have set aside their musical instruments for the same reason. I have a friend who um, came to faith in Christ, and she was a, a working actress, actor, and uh, she she set that all aside for many years because she couldn't see how that was compatible. It wasn't until she matured in her faith... That she realized she could really engage as an actor in, and and she 's acting today, I see her on Netflix all the time um, who uh you know she could do that as a as a christian and 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 living as a an active vibrant witness within that industry she could do it, but it wasn 't until she processed a better understanding of art and creation and goodness and well Gerard Manley Hopkins set this all aside until um The Holy Spirit, as it were, worked him to a place where he realized, oh, as these things come together, I can both follow Jesus and express this art, this beauty, the beauty of the English language, which he did so well, in ways that bring glory to God and goodness to others, while still following the command to not love the world that has set itself against Jesus Christ. We'll hear from him a little later, and I think you'll love what he has to say. Well, so that's what it does not mean. And I I think um, there's a positive call in there to explore more deeply what does it mean for Jesus' followers to really appropriately love the world like God does, and we'll touch on that in a moment too. So what does it mean, this command to not love? It means that we do not invest in, or we do not set as our primary allegiance a world that has set itself against God. That we evaluate the cultures, the systems, the ways of thinking and being that we perhaps inherited or that we uh, were born into, that have, have influenced us sometimes unconsciously. Those ways, those desires, those perspectives, that allegiance that dictated our lives apart from Christ, that we recognize them for what they are and we do not allow them to lead or direct our hearts or our lives. We do not love them. We recognize them for what they are. We distinguish between the world that God loves and the creation of the world, as it were, that has rejected the creator. And we follow Jesus, who will lead us to then lay down our lives for the world that he loves in a way that brings ultimate redemption. Well, John explains this need to not love a little bit further in the next verse. He says, the reason why you're to not love the world or anything in the world is because everything in the world, that is, the world that has set itself against God's desires and plans, everything in the world, he says, the lust, and then he lists three things, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, what what John does is here; he begins to identify desires that are characteristic of this world that has set itself apart from God, Desires that are characteristic of that world, which demand our allegiance, which shape our loves and our hearts, our direction. He, he talks about, in many you know, people have worked through, like, what does that mean? What is this lust of the flesh? And often people think only of sexual sin, but that is too narrow. That would be part of it, perhaps, but it's really pursuing pleasure, pursuing comfort, pursuing the things that make us feel good. Um, it's the lust of the eyes or about image, about uh, fostering a false self or a persona that, that makes us look good and feel good about ourselves apart from who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. It's about seeking that path of least resistance. It's about making ourselves out to be the judges and the kings of what is right and what is wrong. It actually has a, a resonance with a deeper story. The story we find in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that story? The man and the woman are in the garden. They've been created in the image of God, given free reign in all that God has made for them to to nurture and to to, to, um, bring about this potential in the world. It's beautiful. But they're told that there's one tree that they're not to eat of. They're restricted in only one way. Everything else is fair game, but this one thing. And this woman examining the tree, and Adam, who then followed her, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, she looks at this tree that has been forbidden to them, and she saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And then she took some of it and ate it, gave it to um, the man, and he ate some of it too. When John is talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, I actually think he was thinking about Genesis 3. He was thinking about that image of the tree and the sense that we can be so captured by the ways of the world which lead us away from the God who loves us. We can give ourselves over to those things which end up actually destroying us. They thought they were eating a tree that would give them wisdom, goodness, and life. But because they'd set themselves up as the judge the king of what was right and wrong, it actually led to their death and the death of the world. And this is why John is saying, loving the world in that way, loving the culture and the the ways of the world that have rejected the creator, those things are incompatible. They will lead to death, not life. And so Jesus comes and gives up his life, enters that death story to redeem us from it. Of course, they're not compatible. But this can be kind of a trap. I I just want to acknowledge that. It's easy for us when we hear the thing don't love anything in the world to fall into that anti-creation trap. And so we need to guard against that. This forces us, pushes us to think more deeply about the world that God loves and yet the ways in which it is broken. It's important that we still continue to uphold and acknowledge and celebrate the goodness of creation, the beauty, the, the presence of God Here in our world, the need for us to steward what God has given, while at the same time, not giving in or falling for the false promises of life apart from God. The problem is not that our desires are too great. The promise is not that somehow all these things are so wonderful and they're just so compelling. And and oh, but God really wants to rain on our party and doesn't want us to have as much fun. That can be often the case. Sometimes people characterize things like that. Sometimes we buy ourselves into this idea that God is somehow a joy killer, that he's looking to quash those desires in us. When in actual fact, our problem, as C.S. Lewis has famously said, isn't that our desires are too great or too passionate or too, too big? It's rather that our desires are too weak and too shallow. In his famous talk, the weight of glory, this is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is what John is calling us to be. Don't be so easily pleased with the things that will not only not satisfy us, but ultimately lead us to death. Rather, let us set our desires on the greatest person of all who will lead us to life. And so then John finishes with clarity. He says, only what God loves will last. And so our loves really do matter. What he wants us to do is fix our loves on what really does matter. And so this is how he closes in verse 17. He said, the world and its desires are passing away. But Whoever does the will of God lives forever. You know, the contrast between what matters most The things that last, the things that don't. These weak desires, these false fruits, the shallow pursuits of a world that has rejected life itself, revealed in Jesus, poured out by the Father. Those are fleeting. Those won't last. They lead to death and decay. And those who sink their life into pursuing them will find themselves hollow and lifeless, not only in this world, but ultimately in the life to come. It's like investing in a diminishing short-term stock. But investing in what God loves, loving what God desires, pursuing his dream for us in the world, that, friends, has lasting effect because only what God loves will last. Whoever does the will of God raises the question, of course, well, what does God will? What does God want? Because we've been exploring what matters most and ultimately we could say what the Father wants what the creator of the world desires, is what matters most. Well, that's revealed to us already in Jesus. And it's been represented here all over in 1 John. I invite you to sit down this week and read through it again just to see it. We're called to live as Jesus did, to love each other as Christ has loved us, to believe, trust in the name of Jesus. Don't love with words and speech, but love with actions and truth. God wants his beloved yet broken world to become, to be infused with his love. Transformed by Christ, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and that can only happen when we let the word, the love, the presence of God fill our lives and fill our world. Why does John tell us not to love the world? Because he knows this truth. That which holds our heart directs our lives. And where that direction goes will either lead to life or to death. Well, I want to focus on a practical application for all this. My hope is that, as I said at the beginning, we would have a clear line of sight for where we should go. Friends, when we think about loves, think about desires, think about what God desires and what he desires for us. I believe that our practical application, not just today, but for our lives, is how do we develop that love? How do we foster that desire? And so I want to offer two very practical ways that we do that as we finish today. First, I want to, I want to offer to you, invite you to consider, challenge you to be aware of our desperate need for spiritual friendship. Not just friends, we need those. But I'm talking about a particular kind of friendship where we can notice and name our most basic desires. Where we can talk about who we are and who we are becoming. Where we can explore the, the, the missteps and the struggles and the questions of life with someone else that we trust the practice of spiritual friendship where two people essentially commit to walking together, physically or, you know, in uh, as a metaphor, walking together through life, where they regularly connect, not every day, but maybe on a, a monthly level or every couple of weeks, where they connect, not just to catch up about the kids or life or work, that's fine, but particularly to have a conversation about our most basic desires, our basic loves, our direction in life, or as we've said as covenanters, how goes your walk? To talk about that together. Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If any of them, either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of of three strands is not quickly broken. And then John later in chapter four says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. I want to challenge you to seek a spiritual friendship. I want to be really honest with you as your pastor. This is an area of tremendous concern for me. And not just because COVID has isolated us, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about the rubbing of the shoulders and the the connectivity of, of the whole body. But I am very concerned that even with the connectivity of gathering on a Sunday morning like we used to or being able to maybe socialize a bit more, even those, I don't believe that we're fostering this kind of spiritual friendship very much. Maybe not at all. And friends, I believe we need this. I believe it's actually something that is lacking in our life, and we are the weaker for it. And so I'm issuing a very clear invitation and challenge to you to consider making a spiritual friend, of of seeking out a relationship with someone with whom you can foster this kind of conversation. I want to give more details on how that is done. I want to be really practical about this. And so I'm going to come back to some uh, concrete way that you can be involved. But I want to go to the second thing first, okay? I don't want to get too confusing here. So we need to nurture a spiritual friendship. But the second thing is not just our desperate need for spiritual friendship, but our daily need for spiritual practices or sometimes called spiritual disciplines, We need to be practicing things in our daily lives that nurture our desires, our love for God, that keep us oriented around the love of the Father versus the love of the world. I recently read, just a few days ago, a book by Mark Batterson, the pastor in Washington, Uh, D.C. The church there, National Community Church, meets just minutes from Capitol Hill. And uh, they're having a tremendous influence there for the gospel. But Mark Batterson said this in his book, Win the Day, which is a great book to set off your 2021. It sure has helped me. But he said this that was powerful. He said, the only ceiling on your intimacy with God and your impact on the world is your daily spiritual disciplines. Do you hear that? I'm going to say it again. The only ceiling on your intimacy with God And your impact on the world is daily spiritual disciplines. Friends, I believe that is true. And we need to have practices, habits in place that that foster intimacy with God and that grow our impact for the world. Now, I know that sometimes this kind of conversation can induce guilt or feelings of shame or all that. Oh, I'm frustrated because I fail. Listen, I really get it. And as I've said before, this is, this is a guilt-free zone here. I wanted to simply say and offer a steps forward. Three key practices for our everyday life. And some of you have this already down cold, keep going, lead us. But others, this is new. And so I'm gonna offer really practically, there's three key spiritual practices that need to be in the daily life of every Christian, in the daily life of everyone who's trying to seek spiritual growth. It is this. We need to daily read the Bible. It can be just a few moments, but we need to be accessing the Bible, listening to it, processing it every single day. As we process the Bible, we then need to take some time and mull it, think about it, chew on it. One of the great ways of doing that is to meditate on a piece of Scripture or a small part or even sometimes just a phrase or a verse from the reading that we just did to meditate, mull, and perhaps even memorize it. And then, to take a moment at the end and, and pray, um, I would argue, a centering prayer. Centering prayer is where, you, if you imagine what I just said, we read a passage of scripture, we then meditate and mull on a smaller amount, and then we take just a word, or maybe an image that has emerged, and we simply sit in quiet with God, with that word, with that image, for a few moments longer. Listen, that can take, What I just described can take just a few minutes of your day up to a half an hour. Really, it's not about the time. It's about the practice, about the habit, about letting it grow. Again, I have more to say on that, but I'm not going to overwhelm this with detail more than I already have. Here's how I want to be super practical with you. Saying that you need spiritual friendships, saying that you need daily spiritual practices. I don't want to just let that sit out there without some further guidance. And so here's what I want to offer to you. I want to offer a, a kind of a, a clinic, some guidance, and so this Thursday, January the fourteenth, at seven p.m., you are invited to join me on Zoom, where I will share with whoever wants to come. Very practically, how you would pursue and foster spiritual friendship, as well as spiritual practices. I'm going to focus mostly on spiritual friendship with some conversation about spiritual practices, but depending on who of you decides to come, we'll shape it to some of your own needs or interests. The reason why I'm offering this is because I know that we get stuck. We get paralyzed because we aren't sure what to do. I don't want that to be a barrier. What would be ideal is if you already have a person in mind about, uh, yeah, I'd like to ask this person to consider walking with me as a spiritual friend, is if both of you came to this Zoom conversation. So that's going to be at 7 p.m., January 14th on Zoom. But you have to RSVP for it. I don't want to leave this up to chance. You have to let me know that you're coming, and then I'll send you the Zoom link. So email connect at ericksoncovenant.ca and say, I want to be part of that Zoom clinic on spiritual friendship, on spiritual practices. I really believe that this is critical, friends. I actually think that If you will make the decision to foster a spiritual friendship, and if you will instill those habits that I'm talking about, you will see 2021 in an entirely different light. God will do things in you and in us as a church that will be so transformative, we will be blown away. Remember what Batterson said? The only ceiling on our intimacy with God and our impact in the world is daily spiritual discipline, and I would include in that these spiritual friendships. It's really, really true. Listen, I'll finish. God is calling us to our greatest experience of love as we receive from him everything he desires to give. John imagines a world, a cosmos filled with God's love and knows that if we will give ourselves fully to it, our world will ultimately be transformed. But here's the important thing to remember as we finish. We can feel inadequate for this. When I hear the contrast, do not love anything in the world, I think, yeah, but I do, and I struggle with that, and I feel weak and faulty and frail. God knows that. Here's the beauty of the good news about Jesus. Jesus has fully loved the Father, and he has fully loved the world the way it's meant to be loved. He's done this for us. He's already made the right offering, the right response to the Father. He's already set the course for redemption for us. Remember what we talked about last week, the things that are already true, that we're forgiven, that we know God, that we are overcomers? Bring this along with you into this conversation. Because of who Jesus is, we can truly love the Father and not love the world in the ways that we should not, but also ultimately to love the world around us, the people around us, the creation God loves in the only way that God calls us to, sacrificially showing the love of the Father revealed through our actions, revealed through the good news about Jesus. And this is the love the Father is calling us to because it's the love that matters most. Let me pray for you as we go to our last song. Lord Jesus, Thank you for revealing what matters most to you, which is the love of God being poured into our lives and transforming the world that you love. I pray today for our church and for each person, each family who is participating today in church online. Lord Jesus, would we have that clear line of sight, that we would have the courage to take that step forward, that we would seek a spiritual friendship, we foster daily habits that, that ultimately lead, lead to the just transforming love, reshaping our very lives. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.